Take few deep, long breaths and let go. Relax your body, relax your mind. Now send your loving thoughts towards yourself. May I be well. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Now send your loving thoughts towards your family. May all of my family members be well, be happy, be peaceful.
Now send your loving thoughts towards whole world. May all living beings be well, be happy, be peaceful. Now slowly turn your attention to your breath. Every breath you take in, you take out, is taken mindfully. Focus on your natural, ordinary breaths. If you are distracted by a thought or a feeling or a sensation, bring your attention back, back to the breath or present moment.
mind wanders that is so normal be a silent observer observing what is coming to your mind what is going away from your mind <coughs> Now observe your mind, <clears throat> observe your body, your body is relaxed, your mind is calm, tranquil and peaceful.
So bring your palms together close to your heart. Make a wish for yourself. What is your intention? What you want to be? How you want to see yourself? May peace be with you. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. Thank you very much. Please open your eyes. Today we are not going to do the chanting, but we are going to do my wish. So last part. Okay. So we need a little bit more time today. Okay. Let's um, say. Let's start. Good morning, everybody. So today we have so many babies. How beautiful, right? I enjoy those baby sounds. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay. Um, yesterday evening, um, when I do my evening walk, I did almost um, six miles. So this is my time to reflect, think, process things. It's really a good time for myself because most of my life going in front of people. And so when I was walking, I was thinking to myself, there are so many religions in the world. And and also, each religion has a, its own philosophy. And so now when we talk about the Buddhist teaching, we call the Buddhism. So ism, Buddha didn't make. We made the ism, therefore I don't like any ism. Uh, so ism always separating people. Uh, so when we talk about religions in common, I can see a few things. All the religions have some rituals. Do you agree, right? The rituals. Sometimes, you know, now think about December 9th, we are doing our annual blessing. It's a ritual. We are chanting in Pali. Do you understand Pali? No, just maybe one or two words. So when we are doing rituals, no need to understand Pali. No need to understand the mantra. Just somebody chanting or repeating, or you just listen. It doesn't matter right or wrong. <laughs> That's the way the rituals are. Right? Any religions, we have those rituals. Then the second one, when we consider religions, came to my mind, we have ethics. 
all the religion have some kind of ethics. So when you come to ethics, now think about this country as a United State. This country culturally, it, it has your own ethics. These ethics always changing state to state. Is it right? So whatever Southerners are, Southerners are doing, Northern people are not doing. Right? Sometimes West people have different ethics, Eastern people have different ethics. So the, all the ethics, state to state, country to country, it will change. And also, those ethics, when you come to the family ethics, the personal like this, you know, different ethics change into the different areas. Then we have literature. When you go to religions, we have literature. All the stories, made up stories. So we follow the literature too. The last thing is the teachings. We call the dharmas or wisdom. So, now when we are following a religion, we have all those maybe other things too, like that. Now think about, when we talk about the wisdom part, the teaching part or dharma, dharma means explaining the things as they are. Dharma part is explaining the realities. So there is a teacher or master, master will explain all the teachings part. So if you want to follow that teaching parts, sometimes in the beginning we have to follow some ethics to get into that Dharma part, the wisdom part. There is a reality explanation. So, but we are not accepting those realities right away. To get into those realities, we have to have some steps. Then some ethics is really helping us to get into those, you know, realities. Now, in the Buddhist teachings, we have precepts. I heard, maybe you understand better than me because of your language, when you hear the word precepts, how do you feel? I want to understand your feeling about it. When you hear the precepts, you don't know about any precepts of the Buddhist teaching, you never follow the Buddhist teaching at all. When you hear the words, English teachers, please explain to me, when you hear the word precepts, how do you feel? Rules. Very good, very good. What else? Huh? Guide, okay, wonderful. What else? Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> don't tell me what to do, okay, okay. Rules, guide, don't tell me what to do. Yeah, it's very interesting, right? So, I heard couple of time, when people hear the word precepts, people get scared. Oh, maybe there's another rules, oh my God. Do you like rules? But we have lots of rules. You know, so we have a tendency when we have rules, we want to break them. So we love to break the rules. I know Americans, they don't like rules. That's why we have so many rules here. Why we don't like them. So who likes rules? I don't. So I'm the one breaking the rules all the time. So when I was a young monk, 
So, you know, after I get the ordination, then we have lots of guidelines to follow, you know, how I fell is some rules. So, when I have rules, I feel I don't have my freedom. So, Buddha's teaching, the nature of the Buddha's teaching, we, we call in Pali language, ehi pasiko, it means come and see. Do you like that? Come and see. Oh, if I say, come and believe. Okay, please come to the Blue Lotus Temple. You believe what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> if I say it today, I don't think tomorrow, no, next week, nobody's here. Why? You don't want to hear that. So, therefore, I don't like rules. You don't like rules. So, now I want to talk about the what is the difference then taking these precepts and following the rules. Most of the religions in the world we call fear-based religions. Everything is fear-based. Now we have the one, you know, some major religions in the world. Buddhism, after we create the ism, it has rules too. Rituals, dogmas, all those things there. So, now we want to follow those rules. Then religion says, if you don't follow these rules, where do you go? If you break them? Going down. <laughs> Going down. Do you like to hear that? If you, if you go to a religious place or temple or church or something like that, it's sometimes happening. If your priest or monk say, if you do this, you go to hell. Do you like to hear that? No. So, I was in Vietnam, you know, this year, I think, this year. So, we were visiting one of the famous temple. That monk, also his second language, like mine, he tried to explain for my American group of students about the precepts. He always doing like this. You have to follow this, otherwise you, you know what will happen, you go to hell. Now, you know, now think about Blue Lotus people are a little bit crazy anyway. And so, <laughs> I think because of me, I'm crazy too. And so, the way they understand, a little bit different. Because they have a little bit more freedom to think. Now, I'm sitting in front of that, you know, that monk is sitting next to me, I'm sitting here. Now all my students are sitting in front of us. Now that monk is doing like this and giving orders, you have to follow this, if not, you are going to hell. Now I can see all my people, their eyes are rolling and like this, they are confused. Now I totally got it. Oh my God, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> and so I have to explain this monk going crazy right now. So he was telling them, follow the rules. Follow the rules. If not, you are going to the bad place. But people don't like to hear that. So when you have fear-based rules, we don't want to break them. Why? If you break a rule, what is the consequence? Punishment. If, if you know, now think, I'm driving. So, Bandaraul is always here, he's always reminding me, drive slow, because that's my character. <laughs> I, <laughs> I always driving a little fast. And so, then always I put the brakes on, 
When I see from the distance police officer or somebody like that, why I do that? I have a fear. If he catch me, I get a ticket. I don't want to see that's happening. So therefore, if you break a rule, you have a punishment. What is the difference taking the Buddhist guidelines, vows or precepts or whatever word we use? Do you think there is a person come and punish you? Now think about some people, uh, I can say Todd, Vimala, Tyler, a couple of people last 15 years and you know they are following these precepts. Now think about after you take the precepts, I never come and check, do you do it right? Do you break it? Did you go somewhere? <laughs> you know, I never ask those things. Why? You have to follow your own heart, your own mindfulness, your own awareness to follow these precepts. So therefore, I don't come and give you a punishment. But if you are following religious rules, there is something right, there is something wrong, there is a punishment. But in this Buddhist teaching, if you are following, we call the mindfulness training, so these precepts, when you are following this, there is a lots of tendency for you to break them. So after you break them, you know I broke it. <laughs> then what you are going to do? I know how to fix it now. So once Dalai Lama, you know, one man came to Dalai Lama and said, you know, in the basic five precepts, I cannot follow, you know, you know, I cannot follow all of them. I always break one of them. Then Dalai Lama said, let's try four then. So how wonderful, right? If you cannot do five, just follow four then. So therefore, in this journey, there is no rules at all. All are training principles. You always training yourself. You know, it was so difficult for me when I was a young monk, when my teachers or my guides, when they are giving lots of, you know, rules to follow, I felt I'm a prisoner. I cannot walk, I cannot talk, I cannot eat, I cannot do any normal stuff like other people. Why? So many rules around me. It was so much stress for me in the beginning. Now I understand more and more, more than the precepts. What is the purpose of these, you know, the mindful training guidelines? To make myself more mindful, more loving, more compassionate, taking care of my own mind. One monk came to the Buddha and said, there are too many rules. Too many rules. I don't want to follow those things. He was complaining to the Buddha. Buddha said, I know there are too many. If you have one, can you do that? Then Buddha, you know, the monk said, Oh my God, how wonderful. If I have one, I will always think about it. I will protect it. I will take care of it. Then Buddha said, forget about the, all the rules. Take care of your mind. Take care of your mind. So, why people cannot take care of their mind? We are that much distracted. We are so distracted. Therefore, if you can take care of your mind, no need to have precepts. So, sometimes people asking, 
I am always breaking precepts, I have shortcomings, I do all the wrongdoings, and therefore I cannot do it. If you are perfect, no need to do it. Why you want to take the precepts? We all know we are imperfect. So therefore, usually I never ask, last 21 years in the temple history, I never ask even one person to take precepts. But people came to me and the monks and asked, I want to take the precept, then we guide them. So even today, I'm not asking you, but I'm asking you, please consider to do that because we are imperfect. So I'm asking Tyler, please come and continue. And so Tyler is coming from the different background as a business owner, capitalist, and he, where he is thinking about the precepts, totally different. I'm coming from the other end. So let's hear what he thinks about the precepts because he's took the precepts so many years now and following that journey. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Okay. Is the person here that came to the Moonlight Meditation and spontaneously gave me a fortune cookie? So, so we were at a Moonlight Meditation like a I week ago. Two. You got one too. Yeah, yeah. Like we're in the middle of nowhere in a field underneath a full moon with like 60 people meditating. There is no food to be found. And all of a sudden someone emerges and hands us a fortune cookie. And, and mine says, um, sell what you know, people will buy it. <laughs> Now, now, those who know me, this is the worst thing you could suggest to me. <laughs> so I'm going to really try not to do that today, even though my fortune said to. Um, I, I want to give you a perspective before I talk about the precepts of sort of my mindset and where I come from. Um, I was born with a mind that has an incredible memory, uh, like, like really incredible, almost word-for-word -word type of memory. And uh, in my young age, that was really a hard thing because I would remember what people said, but then they didn't do what they said. And so I looked at everybody as incongruent, right? And that's a kind way to say how I saw them initially before I had some thoughtfulness around it. I just really was disappointed by people, not because they intended to disappoint me, but because I had this articulate memory that, that stood next to what they actually did or how they showed up, and it was really difficult for me. And so I think that that bred in me um, a, a, like a ravenous need to like dissect things and tear things apart and really know things for myself, not what I was told. Uh, so you can imagine precepts are double hard for me. That's why I'm sharing that piece is this is a harder thing for me. And then I also um, grew up in a profession for 25 years that um, it requires a license. And every single thing you learn to get that license, you have to unlearn in order to be successful in the job. It is complete and total worthless crap designed to hurt people in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> Remember, don't buy what I sell. But the way I became successful was to use really, really sound discernment and tear apart even laws and say, why is this true? Where was this sourced from? Who is this hurting? And, and, and what do I do about it? Because I, I grew up in, a, in these constraints that didn't make sense to my heart. They didn't make sense to how I operate. And so I have, I have just my whole life literally questioned everything. And so you can imagine when I get into this spiritual path and I'm, I'm learning about various suggestions and trainings and rules, 
I, I come to them like really skeptically. And part of the reason that I was able to pass through so many other religions, but I have not passed through this one, instead I've been able to stand in it and it continue to explore it, even though we don't call it a religion, is it said, come and see, don't come and believe, right? And so um, when I look at the precepts, I, it is imperative to me that we all stay in the mindset of come and see, don't come and believe. And then those of you who have a more analytical mind, um, those of you who are literal, um, I, I'm really trying to talk directly to you because you're going to have the hardest time with these precepts. If they're taken literally, if, if you take them at face value in black and white format, I think they, they're, they're really burdensome. But if you can kind of open yourself up to a more metaphys uh, metaphorical understanding of them, I think you'll, you'll understand. Uh, another brief reference to my childhood. Anybody watch the, uh, the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country about um, Osho or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh? He was the Indian mystic in the 70s and 80s, there we go, um, who had you know, several hundred thousand followers around the world. And he, uh, he's highly influenced by Buddhist teaching, but lots of others as well. And he spontaneously showed up in a little town of uh, about 75 people in Antelope, Oregon, um, and decided to open up his uh, ashram there. And within a year, there were 10,000 people. You can imagine what the people of Antelope thought to these 10,000 people. Um, but in my young childhood, I found myself living on that ashram for a summer with my mom. And uh, the, the man now known as Osho was in silence at the time uh, and in seclusion. So he was not present, but all of his teachings and all of his work was present. And uh, by the time I was there, the community was 10,000 strong. He had several hundred thousand followers around the world, and he was not welcome anywhere in the world, basically, because world leaders felt like he had too much influence. People would come into the presence of this man and just instantly feel something they had not felt before, and he had a lot of persuasion, which is always risky when there's that kind of power. And... Uh, the people that were leading his organization got into some trouble in the way that they used uh, the government and United States laws to open up this ashram, and they certainly did some nefarious things to grow what they grew there so quickly. And when, when he was made aware of it, he came out of silence um, and walked on stage into the darshram where we were all sitting, and it's the first time he had spoken three and a half years, and it was also the first time he realized what had been built in his name because he was in seclusion. And uh, he looked around and he saw a religion. He saw hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, and the very first words he spoke after being in silence were, take off those ridiculous colored robes and wear what makes you feel joyful. Because they were all wearing colors of the sunrise and had given away all their clothing. The next thing he said was, take off those ridiculous malas and pictures of me and throw them out. I am not your guru. You are your guru. And then he said, you are, are not my followers. I am my follower, and you are your own follower. Follow yourself. And then he said, for the first time in the history of, a world, of the world, a religion is dead. And then he walked off the stage and didn't speak again for another week. Can you imagine what these people thought? And then the next week, he came back on stage and he taught the five precepts as a guideline for how to behave in the world 
instead of rules around how to behave inside of a insulated space that couldn't help people. And so you can see the influence I've had. Lots of influence of being skeptical and, and questioning things. And then when, when the precepts came around for me in my study of Buddhism, um, I really rejected them. Uh, and, and I also rejected very formally with Bonte the way that he was choosing to do them. I, I found it ridiculous that we would do them in group. It feels very religious to me. Uh, I, I have like a real hard time when we do group think. I think the world is struggling from too much group think. I really, really stand for people to investigate and think for themselves and use wise discernment. Um, so I really struggled. At, but I, I also struggled not taking them because they felt so sound to me when I read them, when I studied them. I really, really felt like this was an ethical code of conduct that I wanted to practice in my daily life, but yet I was still rejecting the idea of this herd mentality of us all doing it together. So I, I begged and begged and begged for him to do them alone with me. <clears throat> and he did, very angrily, he did them alone. And, um, and, and then he goes, but you know that won't work as we leave. He's like, that won't work. And I think I did them alone a number of years in a row. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even come to our precept ceremonies um, because I just couldn't stand this idea that we were, you know, I don't know, doing it that way. But I came to understand through teach, uh, reading uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's particular articulation of the precepts, I came to understand a new relationship with them, that these are absolutely simply trainings. That they are actually, we are intended to fail them on a regular basis because that means we're actively engaged in trying to use them. And so when I looked at it that way, I formed a deeper connection to them and a more willingness. And then when I would talk with our own Sangha about why they did the precepts here in group, in public, and I started to hear about what it meant to make a declaration to their noble community and how in the day-to-day -day of their life that helped them, I started to realize where I had been ignorant and where Bonte had been wiser than me, that it really does help some of us to make a public declaration of, hey, this is who I want to be, and this is the way I want to show up, and essentially I'm inviting you to hold me in high accountability or in the high watch of these practices and these intentions. And so I hope some of you have signed up to take the precepts. I hope after this you cancel. I hope you listen to me and you use your own discernment. You say, that's not yet for me. And I hope other of you do sign up because you did the same thing. If anyone does this because we suggest it, that'd be so unfortunate. And we'd be missing the intent. But for those who want to, I want to walk through them and share for the literal minds I want to help you break them down into more metaphorical tools. So I'm going to read each one. These are directly from Thich Nhat Hanh's version of the trainings. So the first training, aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined to not, not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. Now, anyone who's thinking knows that's impossible in our current society. I can't keep someone else from killing directly. I wear leather shoes. I had chicken last night. 
Um, the, I, there is a lot in here that read literally, there would be constraints put on me that probably would require living in a forest monastery with someone else doing these things in order to serve my well-being, in order to stay alive, right? It'd be very difficult if you did it literally. But, but I, I remember the time when we had a Sangha member who had recently gotten out of prison and the only job he could get was at a meatpacking plant. So he went in and was like standing in the horror of the meatpacking industry and found a way to live this precept by how he showed up, by the way he interacted with the other people there, by the way he talked about compassion and the way he infused loving kindness into the meat he was packaging and the way he would use his practice to think about all of the humans that would be fed by that meat. So it was in his right intention that he was able to do work that looked like it was in violation of that precept. Second training, aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am committed to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. See the conflict in there? But do you also see the path when you look at it metaphorically? What's the intent of that? What's the behavioral essence of that that we can use? Third training. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long-term commitment. To preserve the happiness of others and myself, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. Well, there's a sticky one in, a, in an era of, um, you know, open freedom and body autonomy and all of us able to make our own choice through our own will through engaged dialogue and consent. That's a tough one, isn't it? Fourth training. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am committed to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Think about the state of our world today. Grant and I were just in Washington, D.C., right next door to the white prison. Think about, think about the use of right speech. Think about how much we pass on, how much we say, how many headlines we read without context of where it was sourced, 
and think about what it has done to us. If we disregard all of the precepts and just think about right speech, imagine if you could even get 5% better. Imagine the ripple it would take in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I won't make it out of this building without violating this precept. It's not, I, it's not a skill I yet have. <laughs> but can you imagine if I wasn't working on it? Fifth training. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to cultivating good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I am committed to ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicants or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, and future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger, and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and a diet for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. That one, that one is the one that tricks people up. I wish it was the right speech one. Because I think that's the one, in my current view of the world, the one that most of us need to be really studying. But it is actually the last one that we usually have people decline taking the precepts because of. It re references specifically alcohol. And it references specifically substances. But you guys, is, is, is there any difference between um, some of the, the way that, that alcohol takes your mindfulness away or the way TikTok takes away the mindfulness of your teenager? Is there any difference? And yet, are we going to take those things out of society? Haven't we tried that in lots of constraints and seen what that does? doesn't work, does it? And so what this, this training is, in, in the way I look at it, in a non-literal literal way, is to look at it and say, well, what does that mean? And when I go and say, well, how could I apply this? The answer becomes directly to the root of Buddhism for me, which is what is the middle path? What is the gentle way through? What is the way I'm using all of these things? I, I remember, um, you know, in, in years past where social media became so divisive and so many people were doing social media cleanses and this and that. And Bonte once said, you know, I'm confused why everybody's talking like this. Isn't Facebook exactly the same thing as a knife in your kitchen? Can't I use that knife to cut up food and feed my family or use that same knife to kill you? It's about how you use the knife. And so I think that's a good way to look at precept five, is to say, how do you use the knife? And so we're going to have a precept ceremony at the end of October. And um, we invite everyone to join. We invite you to join as a noble friend who is, would help hold the high watch for people who choose to take the vows. And we would invite you to come and take them if it feels right to you. And we would invite you not to, to come at all if neither feels right to you. All invitations are open. But I had an experience. I said we were in Washington, D.C. last week, and it was a deeply troubling time for me. Um, 
and I didn't know why it was troubling, but what I know is that after three days of walking through museums and monuments and our country's, the story we tell ourselves of our country, um, I was consumed with negativity to the point where Grant stopped me and said, this is not you. Like I was seeing what was wrong in everyone, which is not innately who I am. But I had not been able to uh, settle what was stirring in me. And, and we went to two places that really symbolize my struggle. One was we went to the Holocaust Museum. And I have lots of Jewish friends. I told them I was going. It was important. They couldn't wait for me to see it. Many of them had benef you know, helped build it. Um, I was appalled at the building and at the museum and at the exhibits. It was so unsettling to me, but not because of what I saw. I could not believe what I did not see. There was not one suggestion on what we do with the awareness they had just given us. So my friends told me that they built it so that we would never forget, and it would be an undeniable truth what happened, so that it would not happen. But there was no mechanism for me to behave in a way that I would allow it to not happen again. There was nothing. There was no instruction. There was no guideline. There was nothing. There was no education to me as a human trying to navigate the world. How do I not blindly follow another? How do I begin a life of deep inquiry so I can decide for myself what feels right and wrong and noble and moral and just? There was none of that. And so I, I left there so devastated because all there was was the grief and anguish and sorrow and no opportunity to transform it in my daily behavior. It was such a miss. Then we go to Arlington National Cemetery. Grant's a Marine. We go see um, a friend of his, their gravesite. We're escorted there. And you, if you've been there, it's just unlike anything you can describe. And I left there, there the same way I left the Holocaust. How is there not an institute dedicated to showing us the ramifications of the need for power and greed? How is there not an institute there as we exit to say, don't let this happen again, and here's how we don't let it happen. Here's what you do in your daily life. Here's how you talk to your kid. Here's how you talk to your dad. Here are a set of tools that if you practice, you could help the whole world get better. Why is that not there? And then, of course, in Bonte style, he doesn't tell me I'm coming up here to do this and gives me no instruction. <laughs> But, but I knew we were talking precepts today, and I realized partly that what I love about this place is we don't ask you to sit and meditate with us, and we don't chant with you, and we don't give Dharma talks, but then not give you tools to go walk out in the world and make your, you and the world better. We do give you those tools. We give you an invitation to them, and the five precepts are at the very base. So if that's of interest to you, if it's, if it's of interest to you to have a set of guidelines to walk out and help us tr collectively transform the world, these are them. Come with us in October and do them or listen. Participate in some way. That's what I got to say. Back to you, Monk. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. It's a good explanation. I'm so grateful. And also, um, Tyler, can you talk about the book of the Tignatan? You know, so you have that copy over there. I don't. I don't have it. Um, okay, so it is called the Mindfulness Survival Kit, right, Vimala? 
I think it is in the Mindfulness Survival Kit. Yeah, yep. Mindfulness Survival Kit. You, I think we have that book in the bookstore. It's a really good book. It's a really nice explanation. You can read it. Uh, if you are considering to take the precepts, and we have some senior practitioners, Vimala is here. If you want to ask question, Tyler, Todd, Dave, you know, a couple of other people who did the precepts uh, last many years, you can ask some question from them and talk to the monks too. And so we are planning to do uh, October 28th, right? October 28th. Yep. So if you are considering to take the precepts. So anybody new today here? New people? Okay, please introduce yourself. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Your baby's sounds. Your baby's sounds during the meditation were just the most joyful thing ever. It was so wonderful. I loved it. Welcome. So, anybody new? Yeah. Okay, Jen. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Good. You did it. Okay. Welcome, babies. Right. Okay. Today is like a baby park. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to double up on t uh, one thing and then a little bit of announcement about the building. I'll do building first. Uh, our tuck pointing is almost done. We have uh, one more round of a few things, but the big work of it's done, the super messy part's done, and the closing of the entrances is done. And hopefully most of you never even noticed it. We were able to get it uh, done during weekdays so that the weekends didn't get affected, which is great. Um, but the next phase is starting, and that is going to be the actual removal of our front stairs. That won't be as unnoticeable as the tuck pointing. So. Uh, just be ready to keep watching for signs. You've already seen we have a gate that is not currently up, but we did put it up when we closed the entrance last time. So just watch for that and know that if you can't come in the front, you can come in the back. It'll never be closed, but we'll be in a rotating state of closure. So we're in process with that. And then secondly, the International Feast fundraiser that you brought up. Um, I just want to encourage, invite, and quite frankly beg people to buy their tickets sooner rather than later because it's really helpful for us to prepare about food amounts and food sizes. This is this has been uh, a surprise fundraiser for us, um, a surprise event that we didn't, we thought it would be really small and it exploded and it's now turned out to be one of the core three major fundraisers of the year for us. So we'd really love for you to come. It's a beautiful night. The food is amazing. It keeps coming and coming and coming to the point where you're almost ill. There's not a whole lot of mindfulness in the consumption of food because there's so much of it, but it is really, really great. Um, I have a QR code here if you want to see me. There's also a QR code on the bulletin board. You just take a picture and it immediately takes you to the link of the tickets. But if you want to keep it easy, also just buy it right from us in the bookstore. So we'd love to have you there. There's a $1,000 cash uh, grand prize raffle. Uh, there's lots of great auction items. Um, lots of wonderful Buddha statues and things that the monks make and gifts from other people and malas and jewelry and art. So we'd love to have you there. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.